All right, glad you're here. Take your Bibles or your tablet or your phone or whatever you've got your Bible on and be finding Luke 15. We're going to be there in just a few minutes. Um, today we're going to do, we are going to finish up Reset the Table. Next week we start a series called Be the Movement. Our prayer for Reset the Table is that God would change a lot of families and uh, what Be the Movement is going to be about is uh, if God changes families, then he'll change churches. If he changes a church, he can change a community. If he can change a community, he can change a region, change a region, he can change a country, but it starts back uh, back here. So here's where we've been with Reset the Table, and let me tell you where we're going. Reset the Table, is, as was explained earlier, is about a fresh start. How do I reset, whether way to act or think when it comes to your family, your close loved ones? And I started off with how do you forgive hurts? How do you forgive when injury has happened in a family? Sometimes you can't get any momentum because there's so much damage and so much injury there. You're not even, every time you get a little bit of a start, you just go backwards two steps. So we tried to set the table. How do you clear off the rubble and at least have a foundation to build on? Second week, we talked about the, uh, you know, the covenant of marriage. What's the difference between a covenant marriage and a contract marriage? And we spent a lot of time on that. Third week, we actually talked about you know, how do you have intense disagreements or how do you fight with the family? How do you argue? How do you fight in a God-honoring way in the family? Fourth week, we talked about how do you disciple your kids? All right, how do you disciple your kids? We passed out a family discipleship guide. You can still get that. Those are not really time-bound. You can go online and get that. They're free. You can pick one up in the lobby. Those are free as well. And uh, how do you disciple your children? How do we be intentional about basically discipling the next generation? Uh, last week, we, we talked about, okay, how do we love God first so we can love others best? In other words, how does God get on the top shelf so that the people on the second, third, and fourth shelf, your spouse, your kids, your grandkids, your work, whoever that, how do we love them second to the way we love God? Uh, today, we're going to end with something I've been thinking about for a pretty good long time now, and uh, it's in Luke 15. There's a parable there. It's a parable Jesus taught on the way to Jerusalem to be crucified in our place for our sins. It is arguably the most well-known story uh, ever told. As a matter of fact, people who don't even go to people who don't go to church, they know this. They know this story. All right, Shakespeare wrote plays based on it. Rembrandt painted a painting on it. Charles Dickens says this is the greatest short story ever told. And you're going to see that it has all those elements of, quote, a great story. All right, it is emotional. It has got family. It has got failure. It has got reconciliation. Uh, it has is, it is got jealousy. It has got all those things wrapped up into a story. But don't look at this. Please don't think of this as some quaint little story that's a nice little message. This is a story that in many ways summarized Jesus' entire ministry. In Luke 15, there's no, Luke 15 is scandalous. It is chapters like Luke 15 that got Jesus killed, all right? Jesus did not get killed uh, for healing people. Jesus did not get killed for, for uh, you know, helping people, all right? Jesus got killed for this, and what he did is he deconstructed all the religious trappings and then constructed the way people actually get back to God and the grace that is available. So when we think about the prodigal, which is what this story is about, the parable of the prodigal son, uh, we oftentimes think of a young person, and it can include that. Uh, some of you have got sons or daughters or grandsons and granddaughters, and your story is, you know what, my granddaughter, she's 19, she went off to Duke or wherever, and she just completely lost her faith when it got challenged. And we're going to talk about that a little bit, and, and what do we do, and how do you respond, and how do you pray, those things. 
Uh, but oftentimes a prodigal can also be in their 30s or 40s or 50s or 60s, all right? It's not just that parents get left, all right? It can be the fact that uh, marriages get left, kids get left, friends get left, churches get left. And there's probably not a family in the room today that does not have a prodigal somewhere in the family. And I will just tell you, the closer they are, the more pain that there is. There's no way around it. All right, if somebody's like your third cousin by marriage, half removed, it's not going to move you a tremendous amount. But when somebody is closer, the closer they are to your proximity, the more that you have love for them than when they are a prodigal. And by a prodigal, by the way, the Bible doesn't use the word prodigal that much. It actually, prodigal means reckless, but the word the Bible uses often is wanderer. Somebody who once was either exposed to the faith or even embraced the faith, they have been wandered away from the faith. All right, the big picture, you can have people, you, we have people in here, you, you're married to a spouse, and at one time she was like locked in, and you all were in Bible study together, and it was going great, and now it's like the furthest thing from their mind, pushback and all of that. You have people that you were in your connect group that you hadn't seen in a year, and you're like, I wonder where Johnny is. I, you know, I, God's kind of been telling me to pick up a foot. Listen, that might be the person God puts on your mind today. What I want you to do is I want you to think about them. Think about them. When we're going through these principles, think about them. If you're a wanderer here today, maybe as we go through this, you're like, that's me. That's me you're talking about. What you need to understand is your past can be forgiven. Your past can be forgiven. Your sin can be atoned for. We can celebrate what Christ has done in people's life. That's what the story's about. That's what church is about, all right? Every single person here at some point that is a follower of Jesus had to understand, you know what? I'm a prodigal. I've rebelled against a God who loves me. So we're going to walk through this passage, and actually, it's actually, uh, it's not really, people, it's like, oh, it's, it's, there's three parables there. There's not really three. There's really one parable with three different acts. If it's like a Quentin Tarantino movie, it's like, it's one movie, but you got like these one act and two act and three act, and you're like, what is, but it's all one movie. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to try to set you the context a little bit, and then we're going to jump and we're going to go to the last act of it. It's the longest one. It's the one that we're going to have to work through, and then we're going to get to where our prodigals live, move, and have their being. All right, so here's Luke 15:1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. All right, let me just stop there for a second because you need to have the context of this. This is the context of the parables. And there have been some great books written about, well, it's the main character is the father, the main character is the, is the older brother, and there's some merit to that. But I think when you see the whole story, it's about a lost sheep and then a lost coin and then a lost son. That's the main thrust of it. But here Jesus is, he's been preaching, and you got people that are loving to hear him preach. They don't all follow him, but they do admire him, and they feel welcomed by him. The phrase they use here are tax collectors and sinners. Now, some of you immediately go back to Sunday school and you're like, well, the tax collector, that's like Zacchaeus, you know. Zacchaeus was a wee little man and some cute little cartoonish figure. Please understand, we got to get this right. At this point in time, Rome ruled everything. Let me say it again. Rome ruled everything. And they had a mass of territory somewhere between, let's just say, England on one side and India on the other. That is a massive amount of territory they had conquered. But back then, you obviously didn't have satellites and drones and airplanes and all this kind of stuff. So the way that you would take care and rule that big of a territory is you had to have a massive army, a massive army. And so the army would come in, they would conquer somebody, they would brutalize those people, but they also had to pay for an army. So what they did is they had a massive tax system. And here's what the deal was. They would go into a territory, they would conquer them, they would brutalize them. 
There was some extra biblical material that actually says in one town they took men, women, and children, crucified them, put them up on the side of the road so that when the people of that town would come in, they would be so scared about what could happen to them, they would then fall in line. So they were terrorizing people. But one of the things that they would do is they would take somebody from that particular territory and say, hey, you come out here, you are going to be our tax collector. You collect whatever 50%, anything over 50% that you want to, you can keep for yourself. So I don't really know a, a modern day equivalent. It would be like somebody conquered the United States of America, brutalized our families, abused our children, and then had an army here that did all of that. And then on top of that, they picked one of you that came and got money from us to fund the army that was abusing us. That was a tax collector. So it wasn't some cute little man in a tree. These were brutal people who were being used by the people who had conquered them, and they were deeply, deeply hated. Sinners were basically outsiders. We're all sinners, but sinners in that day and time were thought of to be like, you got a handicap, or you can't see, or you're a leper, you're a sinner, okay? And so they were outsiders, no hope of being an insider. And so the religious people of that day would say, you stay out, you are a sinner, Remember that scene in John's, John's book when the people are like, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus is like, neither. We're not talking about them. This illness is for the glory of God. And so that's what happened. That's who he, and he was starting to catch grief because he hung around those people. Verse 2, and the Pharisees and the scribes, the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled. Grumbled is an onomatopoeic word that basically sounds like what it's saying. It's like murmuring and whispering. I mean, they would be like on Twitter, on Facebook all day long. It's like, do you believe who he's going around with? And do you believe? And that's what they would do. They would just talk. Isn't it awesome when Christians fight with Christians in front of non-Christians on social media? That's like so God-glorifying. Don't even get me started. Okay. Um, and the Pharisees and the scribes, they grumbled saying, quote, this man receives sinners and eats with them. I say, here's where it's going to get really messy. They're getting upset because basically these people were better than you. They were. Right? You're like, well, they were not. They were better than all of us. All right? these, as far as self-righteousness, they were better than us. Like, what do you mean? They memorized the Torah. Okay? They memorized, you're like, what's the Torah? The Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament. They memorized those. You're like, well, I did a reading plan, and I got stuck in numbers, and I died right there. Okay, they memorized the entire book. That's why they're better than us. Disciplined, went to church all the time, so they did not like what Jesus was, was about. So here's what we're going to do. Um, he tells two parables, one about a sheep, one about a lost coin, how they go to great lengths to find it, and then he tells them this story. And I want you to think as we read this story, I'm going to ask three questions. First of all, why do prodigals leave? Why do they leave? Why do they leave? Okay. What is it going to take for them to come back? What is it going to take for that prodigal to ring that doorbell, to drive up in that driveway, to come back to church? What is it going to take? So here's, uh, here's kind of where we're going. Let's go to verse, uh, verse 11. And he said, uh, there was a man who had two sons, had two boys. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that is coming to me. Now, just stopping right there, that was a big honor-shame culture for the younger son to come up to his dad and say, I want the stuff that's coming to me means it normally came when the dad died. When the dad died, it would have been divvied up. The older boy would have gotten two-thirds. The younger boy would have gotten one-third. So the younger boy comes up to him and says, Dad, you know what? 
I don't love you, but I love your stuff. I don't want you, I want your money. And so you're not dead, that would be my preference, but since you're not dead, I want to treat you like you're dead. I don't want you, I want your stuff so I can get it and leave. In that day and time, Leviticus says a son like that, you could have had stoned to death. There was actually a ceremony that townspeople would do in Jewish cities where if a son treated a dad like that, they would go and they would break a water pot right in front of him saying, you know what, basically, you are now cut off from our community. Do not come traipsing back in here. But amazingly, amazingly, he gives it to him. It says, and he divided his property between them. He divided his property between him and I, I was trying to in some ways this is this is a picture of all of us all of us at times sin is like that there's something all of us have participated in to some level we don't want God in our lives we don't want his control his rules his, we don't value or need his love I, I want your stuff I just don't want you all right that's called sin all right we've all participated in that and so in a lot of ways it's all about prodigal me we spent a ton of time on that about four years ago but why does a person get up and leave the protection and the provision? Every indication in the story is, this is a good dad. This is a great home. Why would he want to do that? Let me give you a few reasons, some from this story and some from a couple other ones. Here's verse 13. Not many days later, we don't know what he was doing. Every indication is he was an agrarian society. People had property. They didn't have a bunch of 401ks, and they didn't have a bunch of liquid assets, so they typically had property. It probably took them a few days to go to a fire sale. Let me just get 10 cents on the dollar. That'll be fine. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, and he took a journey into a far country. Into a far country is an actual place here, but a prodigal doesn't have to actually leave your premises. They can still be in your home. They can still be in your church. That's not the idea. Into a far country for the Jewish mind. For the Jewish mind, when they left Judaism, when they left Israel, they were going to a different faith. That's the picture he's trying to, to paint here. And there he squandered his property in reckless or in prodigal living. So why does a prodigal leave in the first place? Why do they leave? There's a few things that, uh, and there's several different kinds of prodigals in the Bible. I'll try to stick to just this one. Uh, one of them would be this. Uh, it would just be the idea is like, you know what? I'm missing out. I'm missing out. This, the son obviously saw the dad and his rules and his regulation. He saw that not as a... Uh, not as a guardrail to keep him from driving over the cliff. He saw this as a fence in which was keeping me out of all the stuff that I want to do. My friends do this, and I want to go there, and God is a cosmic killjoy, and I don't want to go there. I don't want to be a part of that, and I can't imagine the pain. I mean, if you have a prodigal, you understand this, the pain when, you know, the, the father's position. I mean, the, the prodigal is getting out the suitcase, he's packing his things up, and it's like, are you really going to do this? Yes, I am. And then boom, off he goes, off she goes. I mean, why is he going? We want to yell, stop and think. There's no, there's no future in this. And he's not thinking about the future. She's not thinking about the future. She's thinking about me. She's thinking about now. You know what? I want to go out there. I'm missing out. Second one would be this. this I, see this I see this one all the time. I messed up. I messed up. I just messed up. There's failure and shame, and it can make you want to quit, make you want to leave. I almost picked Peter as the prodigal picture today. Uh, Peter, if you remember, had a great start, but then right toward the end, 
Right toward the end, Jesus is like, you're going to deny me three times. He's like, I'm going to deny you. Everybody else might deny you, but I'm not going to deny you three times. And it's like, deny one, deny two, deny three, cock-a-doodle-doo. That happened. And he, what, the Bible says he went out and he wept bitterly. And then he departed and he got away from Jesus as quick as he can and as fast as he can because that's what shame will do to you. Now, when we talk about shame, sometimes people think it's the same as guilt. Shame and guilt are not the same thing. They're cousins. They're not identical, okay? Guilt is what you feel about what you did. Shame is deeper. Shame is deeper. Shame is not guilt about what you did as much as it's you feel a certain thing, not about what you did, but it's become deeper. It's now who you are, okay? That's who I am. And if you don't deal with shame, it's going to deal with you. And we deal with it a bunch of different ways. Some people just depart. I got to get out of here like Peter did. That's why people are like, you know what? I got to go to a different marriage. I got to go to a different church. I got to go to different friends. I'm going to go to a different town. I'm having trouble in, in Arden. But you know what? Maybe if I go to Atlanta, everything will be different. And they go to Atlanta. And it's, if they don't deal with the shame, it's right there in Atlanta as well. Sometimes it just makes people defeated. It's like, I'm so worthless. I can't do anything right at all. That I've made such a mess of my life. There is no fresh starts available. It can make you feel like that. It's like, I've really, really, really blown it. It's not meant to do that. It's not meant to simply make you depart. It's not meant to simply make you defeated. It's meant to direct you to the gospel. That's what the whole gospel is about. The gospel is about removing the shame that you and I have from our sin, the guilt that we have. I mean, the gospel is not a Hallmark card that's like, I love, you know, I don't know if you can do this. We got Valentine's Day coming up. Just a little clue, guys. Just, uh, hey, it's Thursday, right? Don't miss it. Bad for you. Don't miss it. But even back in grade school, do they still do this? Do y'all give, do we give little Valentines in grade school? Maybe that's kind of creepy now, but in grade school, we did that. Y'all do it here? All right. Grade school, I still I remember it's like, we get to give Valentine's cards and you could do it anonymously, all right? You do it to all your classmates. I had this crush on this girl named Darla, and I was like, yes, it's finally my time. I can express my emotions to Darla. And I was like, Darla, I love you. Signed and admire. It's like giving it to her. And I was watching her open it. She was like, I think she had quite a few admirers. I'm just saying she had quite a few admirers. I was not the only one. But here's what that is love without being known. That's just sentimentality. That's a Harlequin romance novel. Okay. If, you're, if you're loved but you're not known, that's just sentimentality. If you're known, if you're known but not loved, that's just rejection. They know me. They know me, but they're going to reject me. They don't love me because they saw the real me. What the gospel is is you were both known and loved that God knew your sin, that God knew our rebellion in Romans 5, 8, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for you, okay? The cross should continually tell us that Jesus knew we would mess it up, he knew we would fail, and he still chose to die for us, all right? That's the good news, that's the gospel. And what you have here is you got the difference between religion, the older brother, I'm gonna run from God in shame, all right? I'm gonna run from God in shame. If you're religious, what you do is when you mess up, you run from God in shame. It's like, I'm so ashamed because I disappointed God and I surprised him. And God doesn't get surprised, all right? When you understand the gospel, you understand that the Father absorbed the pain, all right? He absorbed the pain. The gospel is, you know what? When I fail, I run to God, not from God. I run to God in repentance and get grace and not from him. But here's the one that is so sad oftentimes, and this is the one that simply says, I don't care. I don't care. And usually this comes from a place of a wound. Somebody got really, really, really hurt. Maybe it was a prayer they prayed, God, please save my mom, please save my mom, please cure her cancer, and then, and then mom dies. It's like, if God's like that and God doesn't answer my prayer, 
then if he doesn't care enough to do that, then I'm not going to care about him. Forget him. Sometimes somebody in a spiritual authority does something that disappoints you or somebody does something that hurts you, and it's like, you know what? Where was God when I needed him? God wasn't there when I needed him, so I'm not going to be there when he needs me. I'm out of here. You hear that story. You're like, you know what? You used to be in church, and you used to read your Bible, and you used to be so joyful and happy. What happened? Well, this happened, and out the story comes. He says, like, I'm hurt. I'm wounded. I'm not sure what to do. You're like, when do they come home? When does that ever, when does that ever change? When do the prodigals come home? I would say this, and I've been thinking about it for weeks, been preparing all week for this, and as I looked at different prodigals, I would say it depends. Because when, when you look at one prodigal like Peter, in his shame, what, what brought him back was grace. All right. When you look at somebody like Thomas, Thomas was the doubter. It's like, show me some facts. And sometimes a prodigal just needs to be shown, hey, here's some intelligent answers to some intelligent questions. But I got to say, when you deal with this prodigal, the willful prodigal, the prodigal son, the only thing that brings back him, the only thing that brings back her is that the circumstances have got to change. The circumstances, are, they've got to change. Now, when you look at this, let me just kind of show you this in the text. Go to uh, verse 14 here. And when he had spent everything, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but I read the Bible pretty literally. And when it says he spent everything, I just go ahead and assume that means everything. That means his credit cards were maxed out. He had no dollar in his pocket. He was totally broke. End of story. I got nothing left. I've tried every way. I got nothing at all. And amazingly, when the consequences from our own sin, because we all know this, we choose to sin, we choose to suffer. I choose to sin, I'm going to choose to suffer at some point. So that's right here. When the consequences meet the providence of God, then you start to oftentimes see life change. So here it is. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. Isn't that a coincidence? I mean, what an amazing coincidence that right there at the moment his last dollar hit the table, boom, a famine came. That is not a coincidence, all right? That's not coincidental. That's providential. We talk about God's hand in history. A severe famine arose in that country, and here it is. He began to be in need. Began to be in need. Of course he did. Big need. And so here, we, in North America, we have no idea how this is actually, but this is the point where a Jewish audience would have gone, what? You've got to be kidding me. This is like hyperbole. You can't even be serious. But so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country the idea, by the way, of hired out is the idea he had to beg him to hire him. It's like, please hire me. No, please hire me. No, please hire, please hire me. It's like, the, I'm begging you, please. I'll do anything at all. And finally, the guy relents, and it says this. He sent him into the fields to feed pigs. Jews don't eat pork. They don't eat pork. Not only do they not eat pork, they certainly don't feed pigs, all right? They don't feed pigs. They don't raise pigs. They don't do any of that stuff. And it's like, you were such at the bottom, I'm going to send you to actually feed pigs. And actually, he's not at the bottom yet. He's almost there. And here it is. And he was longing. The longing is what we're talking about. The longing, the longing. There's got to be something more. There's some attention that God's like, listen, are you at the bottom yet? Are you at the bottom yet? He was longing to be fed with the pods. Pods are like these carob, nasty, nasty stuff that they, they, they feed like horses, all right? It's just like, I, that is the longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. And here it is. And no one, no one gave him anything. Where are the friends? Where's everybody when he had all the cash with the inheritance? Where have they gone? Where are all the ladies, quote unquote, that the older brother talks about in verse 30 that he spent a lot of money on? Where had that, where have they gone? Where have they gone? Now what this is, is this gives you a picture of uh, 
This gives you a picture of the trajectory of sin, all right? Uh, I remember, not, y'all don't know my, or some of you don't know my story, a lot, most of you do, but I told you I didn't go to church much growing up, but when I did go, I remember getting the distinct impression from a several preachers and pastors, they implied that basically there is no pleasure in sin. And I can remember saying when I was a kid, and remember them saying, they were like, sin ain't fun, sin ain't fun, sin ain't fun. And I'm like, you're not doing it right, okay? You're not doing it right if it's not fun. The Bible does not say sin is not fun. You understand that? The Bible actually says there is a season of pleasure in sin. The Bible doesn't say, don't tell your kids, you know, that's never any fun at all. It's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches there's a trajectory of sin, that it can start off extremely pleasurable, but then the pleasures of sin are there for a season. It begins in fun, it ends in darkness. There's that great theologian Eminem said, he said, you have to be careful what you wish for. I always wished for this, but it has become more of a nightmare than a dream. Now, last year we talked about the fact, or we talked a few weeks ago about this last year, we've seen more people embrace Christ as their Savior in the last 12 months, or at least let's just say in 2018, than we ever have in the 100 and whatever 30-year history of our church, all right? Last year, we saw the awesome part, you saw people of all different backgrounds. You saw different ages, you saw different colors, you saw different races, you saw different backgrounds, you saw church people, you saw people who set foot in church one time, and they all came to Christ, and there's this panoply of stories, and it's awesome. Great stories, unique stories, certain ways that God moved. And in many ways, they are so unique, but as we talk about, in many ways, they are not unique at all. Because they all say basically this, I was going along thinking I had life under control. God dropped a boulder on my life. And by boulder, what we're talking about is some intense, deep, personal experience that shattered their pride that they had everything going. That boulder could be a failed marriage. That boulder could be... A prodigal child, that boulder could be a health situation, that boulder could be a company that you've invested your life in, goes belly up, it could be a paycheck, it it could be an affair your spouse has, it could be whatever, and it breaks you. And nobody looks around saying, I wish I had a boulder to fall on me. That's not what happens. That's just eventually what ends up having to happen. And so uh, what happens in this guy, the boulder drops on his life, and here's the way the story ends. And this is what you're praying for. You're like, I got a prodigal. How do I pray? How do I pray? Here's one way you pray. This is where it changes. The prodigal son is the poster boy for repentance in the Bible. You want to see a picture of a person who truly repents? The prodigal son is a picture of that, all right? He thinks differently, and then he does differently. This little phrase right here, when he came to himself, that's a great picture of somebody coming out of a drunkenness or out of a stupor or out of a deep sleep. It's like, what, what was I doing it's what Miles talked about in this video. It's like, man, I was sitting there on my bed thinking, what, 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 am, I, what am I chasing after this for? And then he looks over, and in God's grace, there's a Bible sitting there that had been taught to him for years, but he had neglected for a season. But he came to his senses, and here's what he said. He asked a rhetorical question. How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough? Hired servants are like day laborers. They're people that go to the marketplace and say, hey, I need some extra help for bringing in the corn, Okay. He'd give him some cash, and then they'd be gone. They weren't part of the home. They have more than enough bread. God's a great, he's like the Father's gracious even to his workers, but I perish here with hunger. Look at these next few. Here's, here's, here's where it changes. Again, this is what you're praying for. This is what you're crying out to God for. This is what you're begging for. God, bring him out of that stupor. 
I will arise and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. Which, by the way, one way you know somebody's repented is not just to they say, you know what, I'm asking God to forgive me. But when they go to the people who they've injured and ask forgiveness from them. They say, you know what, I took this from you, I'm restoring this back to you. I made this wrong, I want to make it right as best I can. And so he's honest, he's, he's honest about it, I'm going to go there, verse 19. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's, that's still the shame is there. The shame is there. He's not worthy to be called his son, and all he asks is, treat me as one of your, treat me as one of your, hired, as one of your hired servants. And so uh, verse 20 Verse 20 is where it's going to be for a lot of us. A lot of us are like, I don't know how to deal with my my daughter is so rebellious, we don't want her in our house anymore. And I would just challenge you and press in on you to say, if this is the way God the Father treats rebellious tax collectors and sinners, should not his sons and daughters, through repentance and faith in Jesus, also treat our prodigals this way? So here's what it says. I love this. He arose and he came to his father. So we don't know how long it took. We don't know how far the journey was. We don't really know. All we just know is he got up and he started the journey back. And you got to think. I mean, he's thinking, what kind of reception am I going to get? That's what people think. What are they people at church going to think if I come strutting back into that connect group after all the junk I've pulled? What is they going to? What is that family going to think? All that was going through his mind. And here's the reception he got. But while he was still a long way off, commentators on this, they typically go to one of two places. They either say the dad was looking all the time out on the horizon. He's looking on the horizon, and we see somebody walking this way. He knows his son's walk. He knows how his son moves. He knows how his son behaves. He can see his son, and he's like, that's my son. And that is an awesome, awesome part of the story. But I would say it actually is a little deeper than that, because if you marry that with the first two about somebody going and looking for the lost sheep, going and looking for the lost coin, then every indication is the dad had been looking for his son, not just on the horizon. Have you heard anything about my son? Have you heard about where he is? Has he lost weight? What is his friend group like? Somebody said he was broke. Somebody said he had AIDS. Somebody said, is that true? That's the picture you get of a dad who is actually looking and concerned. It's like a split screen. We're thinking it's all about the son, but the whole time the father is looking for his son. Now, again, we see this illustrated in the other stories a little bit more, but the apostle John says, you know what? We come to the father as he draws us. What does that mean? That means he arranges the circumstances of your life to draw you to himself, and he's working through all kinds of stuff in your life. Again, a broken marriage, a failed career, something you thought was secure is now falling apart. Maybe you've started to look at your family, your kids are getting older, you're like, man, I'm not liking the trajectory that they're on. Maybe some of you got a bad health report, and it's like, I don't want to do that biopsy, I don't like that happening. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Chronicles of Narnia said, God was chasing after me, and he illustrated by a lion, a, de- a lion deep in the distance that would roar, and it was an idea, it's like, man, he's chasing me, and it's getting closer, and it's getting closer. And Lewis quoted this way, he said, he was whispering to me in my pleasures, telling me there was something more. But then he was also in the desperate feeling, he said, and I had my pain. So just the story, I mean, I wish we had time, but let me just, he was a, 
It said he felt compassion. It means empathy. It means a gut-wrenching. It means, you know what, that's God's heart. That's God's heart. Then it says he ran. And again, I wish, he ran. He ran. Now, I know some of you have heard, you know what, when somebody ran, a dad ran back then, how that was so out of character, right? That was in in that shame-honor culture, men did not run. Men did not run. They had these flowing skirts on in order for a dad to run and for a man to run. He would have to hike up his skirt and then run looking ridiculous. I mean, even now, people don't run that much. When's the last time you saw an adult male running in the mall, right? I would say the last time you saw that, either somebody was chasing him or he stole something. That's the last time you saw an adult male running, and they didn't do it back then either. But it's like the dad doesn't care. He's so happy that his son is home. And then it says he embraced him and he kissed him. And it's the idea is he kissed him repeatedly. All right, some of you all have had a lost son or daughter before. I mean, physically lost. It is terrifying. It's terrifying. When we were at the beach one, di- one time, the boys were like, I don't know, like eight and six maybe. And Lori and I are sitting there on the beach and watching them and playing in the shallow, playing in the shallow end, playing in the shallow end. We're reading a book, talking, reading a book, watching them, reading a book, watching them, reading a book, watching them. And we looked up and the youngest son is gone. Now, it takes about 15 seconds for panic to set in. But you're looking around. First of all, you're like, well, I guess the sun is in my eyes and the glare's not there. But then you realize, well, they're not there right there in my field of vision. Then you kind of look around thinking, well, maybe he's building a sandcastle behind me. But after like 20 seconds, all these thoughts start to go through your mind about where your son is. Somebody got him. He drowned. Something happened. The joy that we experienced when five minutes later... It went from sheer panic to grief to asking everybody, have you seen him, to the fact that we found out, okay, this little boy, the the undertow or the current or whatever, just taken him like 50 yards down the beach. And everything in me wanted to go, strike him. What do you do? You'd cause your... It's like, no, it's just like, so glad you're safe. And there was no, well, I'm just going to act cool and wise. It's like, just throw yourself on him and kiss him and hug him and you're never getting out of my sight again. Is that not just a small part of what you see in this story? So i got to go quick, but let me give you some stuff about this. For parents and grandparents, you got older kids, maybe with prodigal parents, here's some things this is showing us to do. Okay, how do you deal with prodigals? Listen, I understand, please hear me on this. I understand. If you don't have a prodigal now, if you do, there, will be, there is no pain like prodigal pain. I'll just tell you that right now. There's no pain like pro- You've not prayed until you've had a prodigal. You just hear me? You've not cried out to God until you've had a prodigal. You've not wet the carpet with your tears until you've got a prodigal. You're like, where is he? Is she coming back? You haven't had that. And so the first thing is like, don't be afraid to hurt for him. What does the text say? It says he had compassion for them. It hurt him. Jesus said he looked over Jerusalem and it said he had compassion for an impersonal city, much less his own son or daughter. So don't be afraid of hurting for them. Here's one that you got to learn. Express love to him. I mean, that's all he did. He just showered him with kisses and hugs. And let me just, let me just do that. Let me just, let me ask this. Cause I know that some of you parents are like, well, no, we can't come in our house unless she does X, Y, and Z. I would just say for a child to see the cross and the lives of his parents is to hear those parents say, no matter what you do, no matter where you go, you will always be our child. And we will always be glad to say so. We may not like what you're doing, but we are not ashamed of you. What's the Bible say? Romans 2 says it was the kindness of God that drew you to repentance. 
You need to be able to express to her. You've got to be able to express to him. You know what? If everybody else walks out, if all your friends leave you, and if the floor goes out from under you, if they walk out, I will walk in. You can say, I can't affirm what I know is hurting you. I can't affirm what I know will hurt you. But I love you unconditionally. I accept you unconditionally. I look forward to any time that we have together. My home is your home. Please hear that. Do not make the test of your daughter's love for God your love for her. Please don't do that. Don't make the test of your son's love for God or lack of love for God your love for him. It's like, well, he's not loving God right now. He's not loving God. I thank God people loved me when I had no bit. I didn't love God at all. Just love him. Third thing I would say is this, is communicate with him. I mean, communicate any way you can. You're like, how do I do that? How do Man, use anything. Text, email, carrier pigeon, hieroglyphics, uh, you know, MySpace, Twitter, anything at all. Communicate with him. You're like, what do we communicate about? I'm sending him some sermons. It's not a sermon. Just talk to him. Do anything you can do to keep the relationship alive. Fourth one would be this. And this is going to be a little controversial, but I would say this. Just welcome them. Welcome, welcome them. Your deepest concern is the heart, all right? It's not about, especially when they're younger, you're teaching them manners and yes sir, no sir, and you enforce those. I understand that. But especially when they're older, your deepest concern is their heart. If the heart doesn't change, the rest of it is not going to change. Let me say this carefully. Please don't create too many. I'm not saying none. I'm not saying none. I'm just saying don't create too many requirements for them coming home. Don't do a If you do these 10 things, then you can come in our house. If he has an inkling to be with you, it's God giving you a chance to love him back home. If your daughter comes back and she smells like weed, man, get some Febreze out and spray it on her jacket, change the sheets when she leaves, but welcome her home. If your daughter is pregnant and not being married, man, go to her ultrasound, her 20-week ultrasound. Uh, help hold her head when she's vomiting over morning sickness, but let her come home. If your son is broke and he is staying at his girlfriend's house or his boyfriend's house, let him come home. You're like, what in the, what? yeah, but what? And then you pray for him. You're like, what am I going to pray for him about? I tell you what, pray that it's okay. I and mean, don't tell God how to do it, but pray that they would come out of their, come, that he would come to his senses. God, please let my daughter come to her senses. God, let their sin be like gravel in their mouth. God, help them to see the glory of the cross and the person of Jesus. God, help me to love them like you love me. I mean, there's a ton of prayers. So here's the ending of the story. And then we're going to pray. I mean, this is, this is like Baptocostal stuff right here, okay? The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Remember the little speech he had? He's like, I got this speech, and I'm going to tell dad when he comes in. And he didn't even get to finish the speech. Remember, he had another part of the speech. Part two was like, you know what? I'm not even worthy to be called one of your servants. He didn't even get to finish that. Why? Because dad interrupts him because he's so excited. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe. That's like you're part of the family immediately. Put it on him. Put on a ring. That's like a credit card or his authority. And then it says, and put shoes on his feet. The only people in that day that wore those shoes were free people, family people. Servants were barefooted. These people, it's like you're part of the family immediately. 
And man, then he's not a vegan because right off the bat it says, and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let's eat and let's celebrate. And it was a party. I mean, you've been to parties and you've been to parties. This was a party, okay? This wasn't some lame party. This was like pull out all the stops. This was my son. He was dead. He's alive again. He was lost. He's found. And it just says they begin to celebrate. The only people who didn't celebrate was the religious, self-righteous, older brother who were the Pharisees and the scribes. That's the only people. Everybody else is like, we are so fired up. So here's what we're going to do. First of all, if you're a wanderer, you personally are a wanderer, man, I want you to understand, listen, it's not too late. You've not gone too far. You've not done too much. Listen, God, you cannot outsend the cross of Jesus. You can't do it, all right? You can't outsend it. So if you're a wanderer, I just want you to understand, listen, the gospel is you were so rebellious and so bad, Jesus Christ had to die in your place. That's bad. That's bad. The sinless son of God had to die in your place. The good news is the gospel is also you were so loved, he chose to die in your place. Now to the families of wanderers, to the families of prodigals, you're a, you're a dad, you're a mom, you're a grandparent, you or a spouse, you are a connect group teacher who you have somebody and it's broken your heart, all right? What I'm gonna ask you to do, and actually I'll explain it, but even right now, we're gonna take a few minutes and we're gonna pray, and right now, if, if you got a prodigal on your heart, somebody you love dearly that's away from the Lord, I want you to get up out of your seat. Pastors are gonna be up here at the front, but even right now as I'm speaking, you get up out of your seat and you come name them, you come call out to God and say, God, please bring back the prodigal. You're like, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. Well, just pray with that. You know, just pray the story. Pray the story. God, I just pray so much you'd help me to have compassion. Like, pray Psalm 27. I'm praying that all the time. Psalm 27, 10, it's like, I would have despaired. I would have despaired. I would have despaired if I did not believe that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living right now. And so what you're praying is you just say, you know what, God, I'm praying right now. I'm praying right now that you would increase my faith. What's the Bible say? The Bible says to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can think or imagine. So what does that mean? That means think about it for a second. You're not telling God how to do it, but think about it. Think about it right now. Just say, God, right now I'm thinking about it. And so my thoughts are turning into my prayers. And God, what I think about right now is there's going to be a day when the doorbell will ring. There will be a day when the car drives up. There will be a day when I get the letter in the mail. There will be a day when the husband comes back. There will be a day when the prodigal granddaughter comes to her senses. There will be a day when the prodigal son says, you know what, this is not for me. God loves me. My parents love me. And Jesus is good. That's what you're praying for. The Bible says, call on on me in your day of trouble, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. So that's your prayer. So parent, come up to the altar and just say, God, right now, this is our day of trouble. Our day of trouble is our daughter doesn't want anything to do with the faith. God, our grandson doesn't want anything to do with the faith. And just by name, you can do it silently, but just by name, say, God, I'm calling out right now. And name him, I'm calling right now. I'm calling out for Susie. God, do something in Susie's life.